0: this morning. Our Father, we thank you that you speak through your word, not a dot or an iota will pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. Remember your words, Lord Jesus, because you are working in history to bring about a great end. Lord, an end where you will reign victorious, where you have shown your mighty hand in power, and an end where you will win a people for yourself. Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts of your truth this morning, no matter where we stand with you, that you would bring us to put our great hope and our trust and our faith in the supreme rule of Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, the title of my message is The Interventionist God. The Interventionist God. We've seen 45 verses in chapter 11 of how God is working throughout history. And many of you will be very unfamiliar with the events that are spoken of here. Many scholars tell us that these particular verses are too accurate to be true. Too accurate to be true. Because this was uh, recorded by uh, Daniel uh, in around 530, 25 B.C., a long time ago, and records events with the utmost accuracy that happened from them to around 160 BC and then some things that are yet to happen in the future. The text is broken up into three sections. What you see from uh, verses 1 to 20 is basically from Daniel's time until what we see, the Macedonian or Seleucid Empire uh, in about 160 BC, and then the rise of someone who we've heard of before, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes meaning the manifest one, this king of the Seleucid Empire or the Macedonian kingdom, thought he was God. And he wanted to impress upon his rule over the known world. And the last section from about... Uh, verse 36 to 45, is for a time yet to come. That's how we break up our text this morning. But the reason I call it, the, uh, the the message this morning, the interventionist God, is because God is working in history. He has a habit of doing things in history that we perhaps feel a little bit uncomfortable about. He has a habit of, as we've seen before, invading people's lives. Have you thought of God like that before? A God who tends to invade the lives of people. A God who is working throughout history. It's very interesting, this week uh, I was reading the news and there's this Not My King movement in response to the ascendancy of King Charles, the new king of Australia. Now, I don't need to make a comment on whether I'm a Republican or a monarchist, But it's very interesting that many people do not want King Charles as their king, even within their own country and even amongst the Commonwealth. You know, us Australians tend to have mixed feelings about having a monarch over us, but many people treat the God creator of the universe in the exact same way. We say, not my king. I don't want to have anything to do with a God who intervenes in history. Why? Because we don't like the idea that someone else is running things the way that we don't want them done. Undergirding that is a lack of trust. Because if we trusted that this God is real, that this God is good, and this God always works what is best for us, then we would want him to be our king. But if we don't trust him, then why would we want him to be our king? And so let us look at this interventionist God with me this morning. Number one, the interventionist God in the minute details. Uh, There's a song by Nick Cave that's called Into My Arms, and the lyrics go like this. And I'd love to sing it for you, but my voice isn't quite as deep as uh, I wish it was. I don't believe in an interventionist God, but I know, darling, that you do. But if I did, I would kneel down and ask him not to intervene when it came to you, not to touch a hair on your head, to leave you as you are. And if you felt he had to direct you, then direct you into my arms. This really summarises the Australian relationship to God. We don't like the idea of a God who would want to control our lives, But if we did, we'd want him to do our will, not his will. It's a bit of the reverse of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? The Lord's Prayer goes, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we say, My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven to God. Do we not? We fear, we fear, the great fear of Aussies is that an interventionist God would not have our best interests At heart, think about it. Think for your own personal life. If God was intimately involved in every aspect of your life, how would you feel? Does that alarm you? Does that comfort you? Your internal feeling about that speaks to the condition of your soul this morning. If it comforts you, you know Him to be good. If it alarms you, you do not know Him to be good. And I want to address that issue this morning. This interventionist God in the minute details we see in our text is ruling over every aspect of history. I want you to see uh, that in verses 2 and 3, we basically get a whirlwind to it. Remember, we're we're going back in time right, to about 600 BC to the major empires that were ruling the known world, sort of Babylon in the Middle East at the time. And during Daniel's time, we've seen the fall of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Medo Empire. And he says that you know, three more kings, verse 2, shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up, against, up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. We know this to be Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the Greek king, who by the age of 30 had conquered all of the Medo-Persian Empire. That is, he'd come from Greece and whipped his way all the way uh, through the Middle East, conquered almost all of it, was reaching right down to Egypt and all the way across to India. By the time he was 30, it was an incredible thing. He is said to have walked in to the superpower and the central place of power, Babylon, at the head of his army and they bowed down to him like he was a god. But he wasn't because he died shortly thereafter. And then the details from verse 4, it says, And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. And that is exactly what happened. He died around the age of 30. And then his kingdom was divided amongst four generals, three of whom took most of the reign uh, and two of whom were most prominent. One in the north, which became the Seleucid Empire, and one in the south, which was basically from uh, Macedonia or uh, northern Greece all the way around uh, to Syria, Lebanon, sort of what we understand in Babylon today uh, in northern Iran. Uh, And then the Southern Empire, which was the Ptolemy Empire, which was basically centred around Egypt. So this South Kingdom around Egypt and this North Kingdom uh, centred on Greece and they went to war with one another. And the text continues in great detail of the battles that they had back and forth, time and time again. Why is it telling us all these details? Well, first to say... That God knows what is going to happen before it happens. It might be obvious if God created the world and he has expressed uh, an intimate care and love for this world. It might be obvious that he knows what's going to happen before it happens, but we need that impressed upon our mind if we are to realise that he is good. That God knows what is going to happen before it happens. This is foretelling future events with alarming Accuracy. Alarming accuracy. But a second reason that this text is here for us, because think about it. Daniel is receiving this vision, from so this interpretation, from an angel, and he's to share it with his people. Why would his people, why would God do that for his people? To give them comfort. That God cares about them in the midst of these alarming world events. Does God care about you and me, during these alarming world events? Does he? Do you have confidence that God cares about you, even down to the most minute detail during these alarming world events? Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus is looking at these little sparrows, these little birds, which are what they use in the old language, a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. Sparrows are sort of all over the world in every country, and they're in multitudes. They're like in plague numbers, these beautiful little birds. But it seems that God loves these little birds And he cares for them, does he not? There's a song uh, which was most famously, uh, the most famous rendition was from a woman called Mahalia Jackson. If you want some good gospel music, Mahalia Jackson is a good one to go to. And uh, she sings this song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy, I sing because I'm free, for his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Jesus spoke that if he cares for even the littlest sparrow, he cares for even the minute details of our life. He cares he cares he knows and he has the power to do something about it which we'll see in a little bit of time so do you see then that this great king who is ordering the events of history is in control of the large and the small even down to the littlest detail of our lives can you see that he has power to do so and is working throughout history. Let me tell you this. This is a great antidote to anxiety. A great antidote to anxiety. I'll put it this way. The more we see where his eyes are, the less we worry. The more we see where his eyes are, the less we worry. If you believe in your heart of hearts that his eye is upon you then you will worry far less and your prayer life will be transformed. Many people feel like their life is in a bit of a shambles at times. That they are between the hammer and the anvil. You know, as a an old blacksmith would have their a big metal anvil and a hammer and they would beat metal into shape. And the expression to be between the hammer and the anvil is to be smashed up by two large, uh, immovable, uh, one immovable object and a large amount of force. You can imagine how God's people felt between the sixth century and the second century, having these two kingdoms, right? This northern kingdom and this southern kingdom constantly at war. And what was happening to them? They were getting smashed up in the middle. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Came, he walked into Jerusalem, just coming back from invading Egypt at one point, and he killed 80,000 of God's people on the way through, men, women, and children. Because he could. Because he would put down any threat of insurrection. God's people often feel like they are between the hammer and the anvil. You might feel personally that your life at the moment is between the hammer and and the anvil. And this text is here to tell us that God cares even when we're in the midst of it. Because you know what? World events might be scary. Our lives might be full of trouble. But if his eye is on the sparrow, then we can be happy because we know that he watches us. He cares about us. And God's people when they're between the hammer and the anvil, tend to find comfort not in world events, but in his word. And that is something that we learn. It's not granted to us at the beginning of our lives to find comfort in God's word rather than world events. We tend to look at our circumstances for comfort. But if you want to find good in this world, you cannot always look to circumstances. They can be deceiving and they can be troubling. But you can always turn to God in his word. First, we've seen the interventionist God in the minute details. Second, I want to look at the interventionist God over evil. The interventionist God over evil. Uh, they're the first missionary, a uh, first American overseas missionary... Was a guy by the name of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson, and uh, he grew up in a very religious family. His father was a preacher. Uh, this is going back to the 18th, uh, sorry, the 19th century, and one of the problems that Adoniram had as he was growing up is that his little sister died at about five months old, and he was very troubled by that because. His father constantly preached about a God who was in control of history, a sovereign power. And he wondered why this sovereign power could not save his little sister. And so he began to despise this God his father preached of and his family worshipped. He became greatly troubled. By the time he went to university, he met a young man called Jacob Eames who was a deist, a deist A deist does not believe in an interventionist God like our friend Nick Cave. A deist believes that God wound up the clock, you know, the old uh, watches that you had to wind up. He wound up history and has left us alone to our own devices. And the evidence of that is the suffering and evil in the world. And Jacob Eames had a great impact upon Adoniram Judson to the point where he self-identified as a deist. This is one of the great problems that you and I face today, is it not? One of the great objections to Christianity might be in your heart today. If God is real, and if the God that Christians worship is the same God as the Bible, then why hasn't he intervened in the suffering and the evil of this world? Why has he not done something? Now, you might have asked yourself this very same question question and it's often put back that if God is really you know all-powerful uh, then he mustn't uh, or claim to be all-powerful but he mustn't be because he's not intervening or perhaps he is all-powerful but not loving because and he doesn't really care it is a great and troubling question for many of us what answers do we find in our text for these troubling questions well what we see Firstly, is that evil rises in the world and especially against God's people. Well, you notice here that Israel, and it's often referred to as the glorious land, or um, and we get portions in the text where they come, people come against the covenant. That's where Israel, God's people, pop up in the text. But they are between the hammer and the anvil. Most of it is speaking about these great kingdoms at war with Israel one another, and God's people are in the middle of it. And then from uh, verses 21 to 35, we see this reign of a terrible king, a Seleucid king called Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, who was so full of himself that he gave himself the name Epiphanes, meaning manifest one, God in the flesh. He believed that he was God. This is where we get the idea of the Antichrist in the New Testament, sort of Based around him as that key figure. And so, throughout uh, these verses, we see again and again and again the evil that he gets up to, particularly against God's people. Interestingly, suffering, persecution, and calamity against God's people can have a positive effect. I want you to see this in verse 35. And it says, And some of the wise shall stumble so that, they may, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Isn't that interesting? When God's people stumble under the weight of oppression, under the sufferings and difficulty of life, it can purify them in God's sight. That is one great purpose of suffering and evil against God's people in the world is that he is purifying his people. He may be doing that work in your life right now. You may have many records of difficulty in your life to this point. I want you to think of one thing that God has been doing through this evil and that is purifying you. One thing you may know is that when you go through hard times, your heart is turned closer towards God. You might pray more. You might turn to his word because you need something more than the world has to offer. Because there's not enough out there. Or maybe you've got everything. You might have everything you ever wanted and it's still not enough. It's still not enough. Australians are quite depressed, as it turns out, and anxious people and yet we are wealthier and more comfortable than ever before. We're a country and a people full of those that have more than enough, and inside we are emptier than ever. Maybe God's at work there. Maybe God's at work in the difficult circumstances of your life to do a purifying work. So you might know one whose comfort will pass over the grave into eternity. So yes, evil rises in the world and especially against God's people. We also see in the text that God looks after his people. Look at this, verse 33 and 34. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. God will look after his people in the midst of it. When they stumble, they will receive help. Though some will suffer and fall, God will do a refining work in the midst of his people. Interestingly, I was was, um, hearing uh, something about the liberated Ukrainian people as the Ukrainian army has been working back uh, through um, Russian-occupied territory. And a man called Valerie said this, We prayed to God to be liberated without a fight and without blood. And so it happened. Very rare that actually uh, someone sees a, an, a, an event happen in the world and they attribute it afterwards to the work of God. They attribute it to the work of God in prayer at, beforehand and the work of God afterwards in his sovereign power. Isn't that amazing? God is at work in looking after His people. The third answer and the most powerful one, because you might say to me, "Well, so what?" Like that this doesn't change my life so far. This doesn't uh, change the problems that I've faced. this doesn't address my personal suffering. This doesn't address the suffering I see in the world not ending. What will? will? Is there a great answer in history that can hit all of these things at once? The answer is, there is. There is an answer in history that, that can meet these great questions. The answer is not, though, an abstract idea, but a person. God become flesh in a man, Jesus I think one of the most powerful examples of this in the New Testament is in John 11, where Jesus was going to the funeral of a good friend of his called Lazarus. And he was with Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. And when Jesus saw the effect that suffering had upon other people, the, the death of a friend had upon the siblings... He wept and he got angry. Jesus got angry at death, at suffering, at the effect it has upon people. Now, we've seen that God cares about the minute details, or he says that he does. And now we're seeing that God has been willing to come really close to our suffering, to experience it personally. And he's upset about it. He's not content with it. He's upset about it. He's angry about it. Will he stop there? No, he won't. He will not stop there. He will go further. He will go deeper into humanity to experience suffering himself. The whole Christian story through the Gospels culminates on a Jesus Christ put upon a cross, not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. The whole Christian story culminates in that God became a man. He entered into our suffering, experienced it himself and was willing to take upon its great penalty to free people like you and me from that great end of separation from God called death and hell. Jesus was willing to take that upon himself. And so... This attitude towards that we might have, that God doesn't care, that there's evil and suffering in the world and God hasn't intervened is untrue because God has intervened and he has come and he's experienced it personally, but not without power because his power grants to those who believe in him comfort now and comfort for all eternity. It grants to us a different perspective If you're looking at life circumstances for comfort, it will fail you. If you look at God for comfort, you will look upon eternity and go, I will be there with him. And you'll be assured of it in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And that's enough. And that is enough. Uh, There's a book called Man's Search for Meaning. I can't remember the name of the author. Can someone remind me of it? Viktor Frankl. Thank you. Viktor Frankl. One of the things that Viktor Frankl observed, he was uh, uh, put into a Nazi um, prison camp during World War II. One of the things that he observed is that people without hope died real quick. They just died. They gave up. You can imagine being in a camp where you knew that you were probably going to die. Well, many died real early and they gave up. But he observed those that have hope lived on. Those that had hope were able to endure, those who had hope were able to love and care for others though they were being oppressed themselves there is something enormously powerful about real hope, I'm not talking about circumstantial hope you know that life will get better at some point you know, with those motivational posters and sayings, you know, always look on the bright side of life, hey sometimes life ain't so bright let's be honest but if there's something eternal about it it can't be taken away that's what we look to I mentioned earlier uh, Adoniram Judson, uh, the first American overseas missionary. And he, became to, he came to be a deist. Well, he went travelling around the country, sort of seeking fame and fortune. He went, went to New York, thought he'd become an actor uh, on Broadway, and that didn't work out. Uh, so he ended up um, sort of trying, working his way around other parts of the country. He was very afraid of going back home because his father uh, would be very angry with him uh, for being, not being a Christian anymore. And he stayed overnight at an inn. But the only room in the inn was a room separated by a white sheet. And there was already another man on the other side of the white sheet, and the innkeeper said this was a dying man. So, do you mind? Because someone is attending him regularly throughout the night. And so Adoniram Judson went into this room. It was the only place he had to stay, it was cheap. And he lay down on his bed, but he could hear this other man coughing and groaning in the night. And this dying man behind the sheet next to him brought up questions that he had tried to avoid his whole life. Well, what really happens after death? Does God really not care? And the faith of his family began to come to mind that actually it did answer those deeper questions that only came about when he was faced with death. He did not know the man, or so he thought, behind the sheet, And at some time around 4am in the morning, the visits stopped, all went quiet and he finally got some sleep. He woke in the morning, went down to the innkeeper and said, well, what happened to the man? And the innkeeper said, the man is dead. And Adoniram Judson was quite troubled by this. He was troubled by the thoughts that arose and he still hadn't consoled them in his mind He wanted to know who this man was. Did he have a family? Did anyone care about him? Why is he dying on his own? And he said, yes, this man has some family. He's far from them. And he has an odd name. His name is Eames. His name was Jacob Eames, which you might remember I said earlier was the young man who introduced Adoniram Judson to deism believing that God doesn't care. The very person who convinced him that God does not intervene in the world died next to him and he did not know who it was. At that moment, he was struck that the non-interventionist God had come to him. There's rare times in life when we're struck by things like this. It may be a death. It may be be our own personal success, but our inner emptiness. It may be a stage of life. It might be the birth of a child. It might be the difficulties and sufferings we we face. God tends to know our pressure points. But he doesn't do it to inflict harm on us with pleasure. He does it so that we might turn to him with faith as Donoram Judson did. This man was so moved by God that he ended up moving to a place called Burma and becoming a great missionary and telling many about the God who intervenes. Lastly, the interventionist God in help. The interventionist God in help. Uh, Read this with me from verse 32. This is speaking of Antiochus, The fourth epiphanies. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. I want you to notice something in the text, right? This is uh, speaking of a time when Antiochus IV Epiphanes came in. This is the second time now he's come to Jerusalem. Remember I said earlier he killed uh, 80,000 people sort of passing through after he invaded Egypt. He came back to put down the Maccabean Revolt. He walked into the temple of God, slaughtered pigs and made offerings to Zeus, which was an absolute offence, desecrating the temple of God's people. And he outlawed. He outlawed being a faithful follower of God's people. He abolished uh, the sacrifice in the temple. They couldn't worship God the way they normally did. Things were getting really dark and really bad. And yet notice, notice this. This is very, very important for you to uh, get this morning. It says, verse 32, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Some will fall away. Some will give in to the cultural pressure. Many know those who've fallen to the pressure of a culture, which is much easier to live when you obey the soft power of the culture around us not to be a Christian. It's much easier, isn't it? It's much easier to give your preferred pronouns. It's much easier to not talk about maybe things that you believe in. It's much easier not to stand up from the crowd. It's much easier not to go to church on Sundays, to have a day to do whatever you want. It's much easier not to pray. It's much easier to date or marry whomever you want rather than those that God would have you. It is easier. And so many will stumble and many will fall by the flattery of the soft power of the world around us. It's not the hard power of, in at least our country of a ruler saying you are not allowed to practice being a Christian. It is a soft power of a culture which entices you. It says, come, it'll be better. You'll, you'll really enjoy it. Come, come to this side. Don't do that. Those things are too hard. You'll get what you really want if you obey the soft power of the culture around you. And let, let me ask you a question. Does it? Do you really get what you really need? The answer is no. For the biggest questions of the world are not answered. They have no substance by the culture and the world around us. Only God has these great answers to the questions that we have. But that soft power whispers in our ear. And yet those that endure, those that stand firm and take action, are those that know God. They really know Him. They really know Him. If you want to be a Christian, you want to endure and whatever is to come for the rest of your life, you've got to know God. Not just know about God, not just say, I'm a Christian, but know Him. Have a personal relationship with Him. I was having a conversation over the dinner table with some people who were at our house last night, and uh, we were talking about people falling away from the faith, you know, people who sort of used to be Christians but don't now. It was a very interesting discussion, but we tend to get a bit nervous about those discussions, don't they, because, you know, it can be offensive. And I I shared, well, the way that I um, look at it is from the parable of the sower that Jesus tells, you know, the uh, the sower goes out to sow and the first saw the birds come and eat it up. And so that person hears the gospel and rejects it or sees the world and ignores that there must be a creator God. And the sower sows in the next soil and it grows quickly, but then it withers when pressure comes on it. And we know that some people accept the gospel and they think, yes, yes, good, good, but then you know, there's some pressure that comes from the outside world and they go, no, no, bad, bad, and put it away. Then the third is a bit more difficult because the third is where the sower goes out to sow, sows the seed, it grows up, but it's choked out by the cares and the riches of the world. Weeds grow up and choke it out. Now, it's interesting uh, from an agricultural perspective because um, weeds amongst a normal crop are very difficult to distinguish. They can be very difficult to distinguish. You really cannot tell whether this person is a Christian or not. And the last, of course, the sower goes out to sow, and it reaps um, 30, 60, or 100-fold. They multiply. Their life bears fruit. They live and breathe Christianity. They know they're God. But one of the things, other things I said, and I think this is where it comes down to, is that God's not just giving tickets to heaven. You know, you come, you pay your fee, you get your ticket, you know, they pull off the stub, you get your ticket, you're in. Do you think that's how it works? That's not how it works. Why on earth would God come to us in the flesh and die on a cross for our sins, taking even the punishment of hell, eternity in a moment? Why would he do that? Risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, given the Holy Spirit to his people and bringing the world to a glorious and just and merciful end. Why would he care if he was just handing out tickets? It's not like that. God is relational. He wants people to know him. He wants people to love him because he first loved us, we heard earlier. That's what God is about. He's about relationships. And so I said, I wasn't preaching then, by the way. I try and avoid preaching at a dinner table. Not a good look. Don't do it. Normal conversation, right? And, but I'm preaching now. God wants people to know him. And so if you have no relationship with God, then you're probably not a Christian. Even if you've got, you think you've got your ticket in your back pocket. It's not about the ticket, it's about him. It's about the God, the interventionist, the great loving God, the God who intervened so much so that he became A person lived among us, died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and grants to all who believe in him forgiveness from sin and a life eternal. It says when they stumble. Have you stumbled? Where are you at? Where are you at in your life today? Have you stumbled? Have you fallen away? Are you falling away? The soft power of Countries like Australia, which are so enticing for you not to be a follower of Jesus, is like a frog in a pot that has a heating element underneath it. It gets hotter very gradually. And you know the story of the frog in the pot, don't you? It doesn't want to jump out because it just still feels comfortable, but it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And there's still the frogs in there because it still feels comfortable. It's getting a little hot, but it can bear it. It's sort of acclimatised till it gets hotter. The frog thinks about jumping out, but suddenly its bones are stiff. Suddenly its muscles won't work. It gets hotter. It says, I really should jump out, but it's too late. And suddenly the frog is boiled alive. The poor little frog. What about us? What about us? Are you boiling alive? like a frog in a pot, with the soft power of our culture, always enticing you away from Christ, away from Jesus. It will not work. The weeds choke out the good plants. But God can help those who stumble. It says, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. It might be today. That you're hearing this, and you have stumbled. And yet Christ, the great invitation of the intervening God, but the one who invites, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden by the soft power and the undelivered promises of this world, and I will give you rest. And the rest that God promises is rest for our souls. It is eternal. It is fulfilling. It is not dependent on your life circumstances. Your life will be full and rich. Uh, if you're familiar with geology or mining, you might know that you cannot actually break through hard rock. You cannot break through hard rock by putting dynamite on the outside and blowing it up. It sort of just shears a little bit away. You can't get through to the, the core of it by doing that. You have to drill in. You have to get a big drill and drill in and put the dynamite deep inside the rock. The engineers amongst us will tell you uh, what is actually happening there. But we know that to drill deep and to put the dynamite in and to blow it up, then everything comes apart and you can get into the core. And that's the same thing that God wants to do in our lives. If you do not yet know that God is good, if you do not yet know that God has come in the flesh and has showed us His goodness in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that He has done for us at great cost to Him. And He invites us now to come to Him, to live for Him in a life without being ruled by anxiety, fear, and the other things that come from this world. If you don't know those things, but you're still trying to work them out, you will not get to the core of your being. It's like putting dynamite on the outside. A little bit shears off, but it really doesn't get in. You need to allow this truth to drill deep down, deep down into who you really are and blow off the hard outside shell so that you might bear your soul before God. That is what he wants to do. He's interested in who you really are. His eyes on the sparrow. He numbers the hairs on our head he formed us in our mother's womb, the Bible says. Every intimate detail of our life is accounted by him. But he wants more. He wants you to know him and those that know him, just stand firm and take action. At the end, and I mentioned this earlier, the verses 36 to 45, in the text, it doesn't really transition Uh, to tell us that this is for a time way after Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, but it actually doesn't fit history anymore. And the things that are happening on a far grander scale, so it seems that these are things that will happen at the end of time, at the end when God begins to wrap things up. And I just want to point us to one particular part in the text, verse 45, which is very helpful for us. Speaking of an antichrist figure, it says. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. God's people are helped. Those who reject God are not helped. There's a clear divide. You can't stand in both camps. Pure water and salt water don't come from the same spring. You must stand in one or the other With Jesus or without? Those that are without, like this figure, will come to his end with none to help him. What a scary place. Jesus says these words which give us great comfort, Matthew 5.18. He says, not a dot or a iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. These words of this book are great comfort to us because God will do it. He will end evil. He will end suffering. He will bring about a great good. And I want to give you a vision for that great good from Revelation 22. And it says, This is where God is heading this world and those people who are his. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepare as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Let me just pause there for a minute. If you've got nothing to do with God now but you think you got your ticket to heaven, what makes you think that he'll want something to do with you then? It doesn't make any sense. If he's a relational God, why would you want to spend eternity with him? It's about him. But some of us stumble. And God is willing to meet us. And he wants a better vision for our lives than what you've got now. A much better vision. Let me finish verse 4. It will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember, every tear that you have shed will be undone. Let me say that again. Every tear that you have shed in pain or in suffering will be undone by him. And death shall be no more, extinguished, ended, finite, finished. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things of passed away this is a great kingdom to be a part of is it not so let me finish with a couple of things firstly the interventionist god is really a misnomer that is it's an inaccurate term it's not enough to describe god we cannot just call him the interventionist god Because he is at work in every part and every stage of history. The Bible says that Jesus holds the world together by the word of his power. All things hold together in him. No two atoms are joined in any molecular structure apart from the power of Christ allowing it. And making it be there by his power. And so yes, God is always at work. And yes, we cry upon him, we call to him, intervene, come, And he is willing and he wants to and he will do it when you call upon him with an open heart. He will do it. He looks to those with a heart toward him. He looks to them. This great God, this Jesus Christ willing to suffer in our place, this good and gracious King invites us to lay it all down in front of him. Come to the throne of grace. The woman who wrote the song, I I, uh, mentioned a few verses from His Eyes on the Sparrow. Uh, Her name was Sevilla Martin. And the inspiration that she had for the song uh, happened in this way. This is what she says. Early in the spring of 1905, my husband and I were sojourning in Elmira, New York. We contracted a deep friendship for a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, True Saints of God. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for nigh 20 years. Her husband was an incurable cripple who had to propel himself to and from his business in a wheelchair. Despite their afflictions, they lived happy Christian lives, bringing inspiration and comfort to all who knew them. One day, while we were visiting the Doolittles, my husband commented on their bright hopefulness and asked them for the secret of it. Mrs. Doolittle's reply was simple His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. The beauty of this simple expression of boundless faith gripped the hearts and fired the imagination of Dr. Martin and me. The hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow, was the outcome of that experience. Maybe he wants to intervene today in your life. Let's open our hearts to him now in prayer. Our Lord, our God, intervening is not a word enough for you. There are a few words that can describe you, but you are supreme, you are sovereign, you are all-powerful, you are able to change people's lives who have chronic pain, who are disabled, who are distressed, who are depressed, who are anxious, who are happy but far from you. You You're able to come in and change our lives. And so would you do so now with your great power and your great love, work in our lives. Thank you so much. What a beautiful text. What a beautiful 45 verses that show us you are working all through history, even to the very hairs on our head. Would you fire our hearts for this truth, that you will bring it all to a glorious end, that you will help us when we stumble, that you are kind and good in every way. Fill our hearts with this love now as we sing. Draw us together to respond to you with faith. We pray together now in Jesus' name, amen. Please feel-